atherosclerosis is the commonest cause of death around the world. It causes heart attacks. So if you have atherosclerosis in your coronary arteries, you block a coronary artery, you have a heart attack. If you've got atherosclerosis in the blood vessels going up to your brain, particularly the carotid arteries at the front, and you block one of those, that's where you see the people who have what we call the hemiparesis. They're paralyzed there on one side, they can't speak properly, and, and they can be it's a very, very dramatic presentation. And that is caused by all the major risk factors for heart disease, cholesterol, blood pressure, cigarette smoking, diabetes, pre-diabetes, and obviously a strong family history, which can affect the coronary arteries, giving you heart disease, or affect the cerebrovascular arteries, giving you stroke. Welcome to the Eat, Live and Move podcast by Miyagi, a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversations, expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness. Hello, I'm Dr. Gina Cleo, your personal habit change expert. And I'm Dr. Ross Walker, cardiologist and preventative health expert. And together with our 60 plus years of collective experience, we're on a mission to help you to improve your health and transform your habits so that you can eat, live, and move better one episode at a time without the fluff or the fats. Today, we're going to talk about all things relating to stroke. In 2021, stroke was recorded as the underlying cause of 8,500 deaths, accounting for nearly 5% of all deaths in Australia. Stroke was one of the five leading causes of death in Australia. So on average, 23 Australians died of stroke each day in 2021. One in four people globally will have a stroke in their lifetime. So it's really important that we have a chat around stroke, that we know a little bit more about it. For everyone around the world, obviously not just in Australia. So we want to talk about what the causes are, what the different types of strokes are, and the symptoms to look out for, and of course, what to do to reduce your risk. So make sure to hit subscribe. And Ross, I want to start by asking the obvious. Can you tell us what actually is a stroke and what causes it to occur? Sure. Well, firstly, a stroke is divided into two bits, but they're both bits are what we call cerebrovascular accidents. So they're a problem with the blood vessels going to the brain. So you can have what we call a hemorrhagic stroke, which strangely is where you bleed into the brain. So typically you rupture an aneurysm, your blood pressure is too high, you bleed into the brain. Or almost the opposite of that, you can block the artery, not rupture the artery, and have what we call an ischemic stroke. Ischemia means lack of oxygen. So some sort of clot or something like that blocks the arterial supply somewhere in the brain and can cause some sort of irreversible neurologic defect, or if you get to a hospital quick enough, it can be reversible, which is a key point for later on. But that, that's basically what it is. But what actually causes that to happen is a completely different issue. I'm assuming that there are things that we can control and things that we probably can't control, right? Sure. Well, I, I, what I'd like to do first is, is discuss the hemorrhagic stroke that I've almost alluded to already. We'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll, not dismiss that one, but get that one out of the way, then focus a bit more on ischemic stroke, which is a bit more common. So hemorrhagic stroke is typically, not always, but typically related to aneurysms. 
Now, what are aneurysms? Aneurysms are little blowout in the wall of arteries, and and they're they're basically genetic weaknesses in the wall of your artery. So when you think about a tire blowing out, well, the same thing can happen with a blood vessel in 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 the wall of the blood vessel. And that that that's what happens. And depending on the size of the of the rupture and the amount of blood that goes into the brain, will will then relate to the uh, the symptoms people have, the prognosis, how well they recover, and and Tragically, sometimes people don't survive that. So what are the symptoms of a hemorrhagic stroke? The symptoms are very sudden onset of severe headache, uh, localized neurologic problems, and and sometimes you can bleed so much into the brain that could have compressed the brain tissues down, and then unfortunately you go into a coma and sometimes they survive. So you mentioned neurologic problems. What do you mean by that? Well, I, what I mean basically what we call lateralizing symptoms. So someone can suddenly lose their speech or suddenly become weak down one side or suddenly have visuals disturbances, something like that. So anything new that that you don't know what's going on, you say, gee, I, I can't use the left side of my body or I'm getting these dreadful pins and needles down one side. Not, not always a hemorrhagic stroke. That could also be an ischemic stroke as well. But as I said, it's blood pressure, it's cerebral aneurysms. They're the things that are related to this hemorrhagic stroke. Needs urgent treatment and sometimes can be resolved completely. Okay. And would that be one of like the first symptoms that someone might notice or have they noticed other things and this is now a progression? Well, if, if, for example, they have an expanding aneurysm that hasn't ruptured as yet, they might be just getting intermittent headaches as one example. And that, that's that's one way they may know that they have an expanded area, but it's not that common. The common the common presentation of an aneurysm is a sudden rupture with sudden onset, dreadful. We're talking a headache that just comes on like that, and is so excruciating. And and that's where you need to get to a hospital urgently for the hemorrhagic stroke. So let's now move on to the next category, which is ischemic stroke. But I just want to just make a note here. You would know the difference between that kind of headache and just like your everyday type of head, like the dehydrated headache. Sure, you're sure. saying this headache is much worse. No, oh, this is this is this is big league headache. Okay, We're not so talking about like IGO. I've got a slides. bit of a headache. I don't feel that well here. That's not hemorrhagic stroke. Right, got you. Hemorrhagic stroke. We call it a thunderclap headache. It just comes on yeah. boom like that, and it's really severe. And does it come with any sort of visual effects as well? You know how sometimes you get a headache and. You're like more sensitive to light or your eyes might hurt. Does it come with anything else or is it just like a badass headache? Yeah. No, this is the badass headache. No, okay. it's, 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 and look, it may have some visual side, uh, symptoms with it as well, but it's not the problem. The prominent thing is that headache is number one. That's okay. really driving you nuts. And, and often when you get to the hospital, your blood pressure's through the roof as well. The key, yeah. the quicker you get to the hospital, the better. Got you. Okay. All right. Moving on to the other type of stroke. Ischemic stroke. Now- I, I want to discuss this in five categories, okay, because there are five different types of causes for this ischemic stroke. Now, the number number one cause that we need to discuss, which is probably not the most common, but it's, it's the one that a lot of people understand, is what we call the atherosclerotic stroke. Now, atherosclerosis is the commonest cause of death around the world. It causes heart attacks. So if you have atherosclerosis in your coronary arteries, you block a coronary artery, you have a heart attack. If you've got atherosclerosis in the blood vessels going up to your brain, particularly the carotid arteries at the front, and you block one of those, 
that's where you see the people who have what we call the hemiparesis. They're paralyzed on one side. They can't speak properly. And, and they can be, it's a very, very dramatic presentation. And that is caused by all the major risk factors for heart disease, cholesterol, blood pressure, cigarette smoking, diabetes, prediabetes, and obviously a strong family history, which can affect the coronary arteries, giving you heart disease, or affect the cerebrovascular arteries, giving you stroke. And, and again, the message, same message for the hemorrhagic stroke, get to that hospital immediately because now, just for example, you rupture a carotid plaque here that's got a big blockage and you, you send clots down into the rest of the brain and you suddenly can't speak or you suddenly can't move one side of the body. We can now go in through the artery in the groin or the artery in the wrist, go up to the brain and remove the clot. It's called a thrombectomy and that, that can absolutely cure the stroke. So please, that we, we always talk about the fast routine. So the, fa the, the fast regimen is, is firstly something going wrong with the face, your face is drooping, your arms, your speech, and T is for time. Time is brain. The longer you wait at home when you see sudden onset, weakness down the face, weakness down the arm, speech disturbance, the longer you wait, the more brain you damage. The quicker you get to the, the hospital, the better off it is. So that's atherosclerotic stroke. We'll talk about management in a second. Russ, you mentioned going to the hospital. I'm assuming you can't like drive yourself to the hospital, right? No, 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 no. That's, yeah. that's what triple idea. O, that's, you ring triple O, you say, I th or you or your relative <laughs> rings triple O if, if you're not able to do so mm. and, and says, look, I think I'm having a stroke. I really need to get to the hospital. Okay. They will have the ambulance, the paramedics on the way to get you there. No one should ever drive themselves in that situation because you may involve yourself in a major accident because you've lost your coordination, not just kill yourself, but kill other people. Got you. Must, must call the ambulance. Do you find that, like in the comparison, say, between men and women, that men might hold off a bit longer to go to the hospital than women? Do you know if there's any data uh, around this? I, I can't quote the data, but I can tell okay. you from personal experience, women are much better at reporting any symptoms about anything, not just stroke. Yeah. Men. So, so men tend to sit on things and, and use the she'll be right principle, sweep it under the carpet <laughs> and deal with it in the morning. Oh, it's two yeah. in the morning. I don't want to get out of bed. I'll yeah. wait and see if I'm better in the morning. That yeah. is the worst thing you can do. It's so bad. The other day, my dad ended up in hospital. His, his blood pressure was 70 over 40. It's and a bit low. the doctor, it was so, so low. And the doctor's like, your kidneys aren't working. And he was just dehydrated, right? He's got emphysema, so he doesn't like to get up and walk around too much. So he's getting lazy, didn't want to go out, get up and go to the bathroom. So he just decided not to drink for a while. And yeah, for about two days, my mum was like, you need to go to the hospital. He's like, I'm fine. It's fine. And then like on the third day, he was like, I think I need to go see someone. She's like, finally. And the doctor was like, what made you wait so long? And she's like rolling her eyes. He's a male. That's what he's, made him wait so long. He's an old so, stubborn old man. That's what yeah, he that's, is. Yeah, that's men. So let's okay. move on to number two. Yep. Number two is called a lacuna infarct. Now, most people haven't heard of this, but that's typically related to a marked increase in blood pressure which then tends to damage more the peripheral arteries within the brain. Very dramatic presentation, but if you get into the hospital and they manage the blood pressure and get you under control, often the dramatic uh, symptoms that you're presenting with can be reversed. Another good reason why you should get to the hospital as soon as possible. 
That's number two. Number three, and this is probably the commonest cause of stroke, and it's not spoken about enough, is a condition that I see in my own practice three or four times a day at least called atrial fibrillation. Now, atrial fibrillation is the commonest rhythm disturbance in the heart. So basically, most of us know the heart's got four chambers, two at the top, two at the bottom. The two at the top are called the atrium, right atrium, left atrium, two at the bottom, the ventricles, right ventricle, left ventricle. So all day, every day, the heart's going boom, 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 boom. That's normal. That's sinus rhythm. When you go to atrial fibrillation, the top chambers just quiver and the bottom chambers just bump all over the place. So when the, when the top chambers quiver, little clots can form and then flick up to the skull. And that's a third of the cause of stroke. It's got nothing to do with cholesterol, it's got, but it's got everything to do with atrial fibrillation. And that's where you need very strong blood thinners. We have three new very strong blood thinners, much better than aspirin. Aspirin does nothing to this at all. And this is why it's, re- this is why it's really important we're having this conversation and why it's really important that people know what type of stroke they have because the treatment for each type of stroke is different. So, so, and you may not even know that you've had atrial fibrillation, but that's still the cause of your stroke. A third of people don't even know they get atrial fibrillation. So what causes atrial fibrillation? This should be a topic of another podcast, but just briefly, 1% of people up to age 50 have had a clinical episode of fibrillation, 5% 60, 10% 70, 20% 80. If we all lived to 150, and thank God at the moment we don't, but if we did, we'd all be in atrial fibrillation because the electrics of the top chambers, the two thinner chambers start to wear out as we get older, made worse by high blood pressure, alcohol, thyroid disease, a whole lot of other conditions as well, a whole lot of cardiac conditions. But that's, again, should be the focus of a podcast by itself. So that's atrial fibrillation. Now we're moving on to number four. Now this one's going to surprise you. This is where there's a communication between the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart. One in four people have a thing called a patent foramen ovale. Now that sits in the in, between the right atrium and left atrium, and it was open during utero when you're in your mother's abdomen because you were getting your blood supply from the umbilical vessels, the placenta into the umbilicus across a, across this foramen ovale into the left side of the heart, oxygen pumped to the body. When you take your first breath, that little flap closes. And so there's no communication between the right atrium and the left atrium. But in one in four people, we're talking about incredibly common condition, there's that little communication still. But because the pressure on the left side is more than the pressure on the right side in the atrium, the blood goes from the left to the right. Here's the problem. At the wrong time, if you cough, sneeze, or strain, when a little clot comes up from, from, your, uh, from your legs and... These days, with the sedentary lifestyles people live, or if you have if you have prolonged immobilization, many people are getting little clots in their legs, which is why we shouldn't be sitting all the time, because there, there's a condition now called e-thrombosis, which is getting clots in your legs from sitting in front of a damn computer all day. And and so unless you get up and move around, those little clots can come up, and if at the wrong time, cough, sneeze, strain, you can increase the pressure to the right side, push it over the left side, up to your skull. Let me tell you a story. A very good friend of mine, um, he's been a friend, of, a family friend for many years. His wife's a general practitioner and they live in the country. And he had a stroke at the age of 50. And his wife rang and said, oh, he's in the hospital. I won't say where it was, 
but he's in the hospital. He's having a stroke. I said, what are they doing for him? Are they giving him aspirin? I said, no, 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 no. I said, I want him down to Sydney. We got him down to Sydney. I got some of my colleagues to do some tests on his heart. We found the hole in his heart. It was closed with the procedure, a little umbrella device put over the flap. So it was closed. His stroke was then cured. He, re- he recovered completely. His life's now back to normal. But had he been left on just aspirin, he probably would have had more clots, more strokes, and then become disabled from it. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to know, do you have a patent for Amen Ovale, which can be detected with cardiac tests, and then it can be closed if you need to close. So that's is, number four. Is that something that a GP can arrange, or like how how would oh, somebody be able to do that? You've got to be referred to someone like me. You've got to be referred to a cardiologist to get it set, sorted out. But it, it's not difficult to sort out. I can assure you. The tests we do that detect this this foramen ovale to see whether there's a leak across it. And so it's that, a fairly common test. Or would you have like how would you determine? Oh, well, I well, should test this person for this. The first thing we do is a is an ultrasound of the heart, a transthoracic echo, and often you can see it on that. But sometimes you need a thing called a transesophageal echo, where you put off to sleep, a tube is passed down the throat, and you get these beautiful pictures of the back of the heart when you do that. And it's it's a, it's a minor invasive procedure, and it gives you this important information that may really determine the rest of your life. So mm. that's number four. So okay. let's finish. Yeah, with give number me number five. five. Number five is what we call a thrombophilic state. Now that what that basically means, and see everything in life's on a bell shaped curve. There are people who are incredibly tall, people who are incredibly short. Most of us are somewhere here in the middle. And it's the same thing with every characteristic. There's clotting and bleeding. So there are clotters and there are bleeders. One percent of people are born with a genetic defect in their clotting, which makes their blood thicker than the next guy. So, for example, someone sits on a plane from here to Heathrow and ends up with a big clot in their legs called the economy syndrome. They want to sue Qantas. They actually should be suing their relatives for giving them the genes that made them have thick blood. It's not Qantas' fault. It's their relatives' fault for giving them those thick genes. Do you think the Qantas insurance knows this? No, they don't, but they should. But a young woman, for example, in her 20s goes on the oral contraceptive pill and within a month has had a stroke. She wants to sue the pharmaceutical companies because she's had a stroke. Again, she should be suing her relatives who've given her the genes that thicken her blood. The the contraceptive pill just pushed her over to to this very severe clot form. And there, obviously, she can't take the uh, the hormone, any sort of hormone replacement because that will thicken her blood in her case. And there are simple tests you can have in that situation to see whether you have one of the common blood clotting disorders. There's a thing called factor V Leiden, prothrombin complex, anti-cardiolipin antibody syndrome. So so all, all of these things are part of the blood clotting system, which can then predispose you to stroke as well. So I've just basically given you a pretty extensive overview of the five different categories of ischemic stroke. I just I'll say them again just for completeness. Number one is the atherosclerotic stroke. Number two is the lacuna infarct, the blood pressure-related thing. Number three is atrial fibrillation. Number four is the patent frame and ovale, hole in the heart. And number five is a clotting tendency. So they're the things that actually cause stroke, ischemic stroke. Fascinating, Ross. I love how you can just recite things like this. And I I also have noticed you love the number five. There's a lot of fives. Everything Think of it logically. Every, everything's in five. You've got it's five not, digits. You have five yeah. senses. There are five seasons. <laughs> if you count Frankie Valley, 
Everything's in fives. (laughs) Nice try with that one. (laughs) Ross, you brought up the contraceptive pill. So say a young woman wants to go on the contraceptive pill but has a family history of stroke. Yep. Would that be a contraindication or would that just be something that you'd want to monitor while you're on the pill? Or like what happens yeah. then? That's a magnificent question. And can I say, it really depends on who's had the stroke and when they've had the stroke. So just just say, for example, you've got a family history where your mother or your father or a sibling has had recurrent DVTs or has had pulmonary emboli or a stroke, then there possibly is a strong clotting tendency in your family. So you're, you're a 22-year-old woman and you think, look, I'm going to start taking the pill for, for the variety of reasons women take the oral contraceptive pill. But you've got that family history. Personally, if I was your doctor in that situation, I'd be getting this thrombophilia screen to see if it's safe for you to go on the pill. And, and it is, it is a moder- moderately expensive test unless you've got that history. If you've got that history, it is covered by the Medicare system. And I think it's an important thing to do with that family history. I don't think that it should be a routine for every woman in their late teens, early 20s who wants to start the pill to go and have that test. That's just not cost-effective. But with but the family history is important. But just say your grandfather had a stroke at 85, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I, I've got a, I'm, What I'm talking about is a, a pretty strong family history of clotting of any sort. doesn't have to be stroke. That's where I'd be going off and having the test done. That's a great differentiation to know. Okay, what about this? What if it's like a 16 or 17 or 18-year-old girl? Because I know that a lot of young girls want to go on the concept of pills, say, for their acne or their skin. Would there be? Would you want to do the same test for a young person compared with, say, like a 40-year-old woman who wants to go on the pill? Like, are the parameters the same? Same, same parameters. It's, it's, you've got to always look at family history, which is why it's so important that every good doctor takes a good history and not just a history of that person's health, but a history of the health of their family. And can I just bring in another little point here? And I don't want to get into the pro-vaccination of COVID nonsense that people have carried on over the past few years. But we, when the vaccines came out for COVID, there was this big hoo-ha about the AstraZeneca vaccine causing clotting. But it was my hypothesis based on the science around this, that the reason for that is there's this condition that I've mentioned called the anti-phospholipid antibody syndrome, which is a a disorder. It's a bit like lupus where you get antibodies to a thing called platelet factor four, which is one of the the platelets are the little sticky elements that form clots with clotting factors. And so this this is what happened with anti-phospholipid antibody syndrome, which occurs in about five per 100,000 people. But... If and this is my theory, the AstraZeneca vaccine absolutely works on platelet factor four, exactly the same thing. So the people who were who were getting clotting with the AstraZeneca vaccine almost certainly had some degree of anti-phospholipid antibody syndrome, and the AstraZeneca vaccine just stirred that up. But that was only five per hundred thousand people. So we took we we have taken off, I believe, the best vaccine we had for COVID, much better than the RNA vaccines. Uh, purely because of this rare complication in people who had the rare condition. And that, that was just another interesting aspect, not really to do with stroke, but these, some of these people were having strokes after having the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I think because they had 
antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Oh, that's Just- so interesting. I've always been interested in the idea of having a genetic test. Like you're talking about all these DNA tests and these potential of like mutations. And I know that you can send off and have, you know, all the different things measured. But I also think that I'm probably the kind of person who would start to symptom check. Like say, I don't know, there's like heaps of diabetes in my family, for example. Yeah. You know, the moment well, I- it has to be because you're from Egypt. Well, and, Insul- and there is. Insulin, insulin resistance. There you go. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. What no, it it's is. true. No, it does. It happens. Both my grandparents had type 2 diabetes and they died quite young. Thankfully, my parents are still good. But the point is, I feel like I would symptom check. I'd be like, ooh, this is going to happen or I'm going to get this or- like, I, I almost feel like I would overdiagnose myself if I actually knew all the genetic mut- mutations. Probably not enjoy life as much either. I'd be like, oh, I can't have this or I shouldn't eat that. But you you know, the epitaph on the hypochondriac's grave said, I told you so. Ah. So, so <laughs> yeah, but still, hypochondriacs still get symptoms and they still, sometimes they do need to be assessed. We know right. the little boy who cried wolf. So, you still have to listen to what people say yeah. to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a hypochondriac. I just no, feel no. like I would want check. to be diligent yep. in ensuring that I'm preventing potential, you know, genetic things. But yeah, I wonder. I also do think that it can cause an overdiagnosis. But I, but obviously, for a lot of people, it saves their lives. I'm sure if a lot of those people knew that they had this mutation, they wouldn't have taken that AstraZeneca a- absolutely. vaccine. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. If they knew they. But, but with that, it could have been diagnosed from just looking at their blood count and looking at the mm. platelets. So there's a whole lot of other things to do in that. that yeah. That's a bit of a sidelight, but let's get back to stroke. Okay. I wanted to ask you, Ross, are strokes preventable? Like even yeah, the, with these genetic look, mutations? Can I say, especially for people over the age of 65, 90, 90 to 95% of strokes are related to blood pressure and atrial fibrillation. So if you treat blood pressure well and treat atrial fibrillation well, so for example, all people over the age of 65 who have atrial fibrillation should be on one of these strong blood thinners. Now, everyone listening to this has heard of warfarin, the old style that people called a rat poison. It actually isn't. It was a, but a, but it's a, the active component was used in lethal doses to kill rats, but it, in humans, it's used in smaller doses to thin the blood. But it was a real pain in the butt to be on because you, you had to have regular blood tests, watch what you eat, watch pills you, you took, what how much you drank. Whereas these new drugs, drugs we call Eliquis, Pradaxa, and, and Xarelto, these new drugs, you don't have to have blood tests. You don't have to be as diligent with the food you eat and, and alcohol and, and the medications you take. And they've been an absolute boom for the treatment of atrial fibrillation to stop people having stroke, because that's the key. That's the key. So, so, so basically, treat atrial fibrillation, treat blood pressure. But the, the message that you and I give everybody, it's not just about medical treatment. It's still the 80-10-10 rule. 80% of your management is still how you look after yourself. Those five keys of being healthy, I'll just go over them again quickly. No addictions, good sleep, good eating and less of it, three to five hours of exercise, and most importantly, happiness. That is 80% of everyone's management. And, if, and I've never seen one person in 40 years of practicing medicine had a heart attack, stroke, stent, bypass, whatever, who wasn't under some form of stress at the time. And, and so people who, whose life was going along well and they were looking after themselves well, 
they just don't get these problems. And, and so there's always a stressor that precipitates it. So so you've got to look at your lifestyle, but you've also got to look at the management that you get for all the other things and look at your family history and have the right checkups. So I guess right with check. family history, we can't change that, but lifestyle, we obviously can. So there are plenty of modifiable risk factors. Oh, no, no doubt. No doubt. And the first and, one and you also mentioned- have yeah. medical treatment as well. Of course. The first one you mentioned is, you know, quitting addictions or, or managing addictions in your life. And I'm I'm guessing one of the biggest ones, of two really, is smoking and alcohol when it comes to stroke. Can you tell me a little bit more about, like, smoking? Like, how does smoking impact stroke risk? Well, well how smoking impacts stroke risk is, is very straightforward because the biggest organ in the body, if you're playing Trivial Pursuit, is the skin, and that's wrong. The biggest organ in the body is the endothelium, which is the single layer of cells that lines every blood vessel. So when you smoke one cigarette, you knock off your endothelial function for an hour, which is just ridiculous. And so you're damaging your endothelium with every cigarette, allowing muck to get across the lining of the blood vessel into the wall of your blood vessel, damage the blood vessel so the blood vessels just don't work as well as you get older, setting up for hemorrhagic stroke and for ischemic stroke, alcohol, alcohol in low doses, no big deal. But in heavier doses, so more than more than three, three or more alcoholic drinks per day, can actually it's a cellular poison. Poisons the brain, poisons the heart, the liver, every cell in the body, and can also push up your blood pressure, make things so much worse. So, so you've got to get and, and illegal drugs. I mean, people say, "Oh, having a joint's okay." No, it's not. It, again, within, within two hours of smoking a joint, you increase your risk for a heart attack and stroke five times. Have a snort of cocaine, your blood pressure goes through the roof, you rip open your arteries. I mean, these things are so bad for you. We're saying not to snort cocaine, just I'm in saying, case. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> say, I'm definitely saying not. I'm saying don't use any illegal drugs, any illegal drugs at yeah. all. Yeah. At all. There's a reason why they're illegal. Yeah, they're not recreational. They're poisons that kill you. Okay, so you mentioned about smoking. That what you said was fascinating. Like the hour of clogging. Is it the same for vaping? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. In fact, I heard you ask me that question. Uh, uh, studies have been done now comparing vaping to smoking, and vaping actually causes more endothelial damage than the horrible endothelial damage caused by cigarettes. So vaping is poison. You see, when, when vaping first came out, everyone said, oh, no, it's better for you than cigarettes, blah, 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 blah. But it's only now that, that vaping's been around for 10 or 15 years, people are seeing the damage. When smoking first came out, when, uh, when people were doing it when I was a kid, doctors used to encourage people to smoke as a form of stress relief until the 20-year data came out. No, 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 no. Va- vaping's horrible. Okay, awesome. Tell me about sleep apnea, Ross. You know, can sleep apnea increase risk of stroke? Oh, absolutely, for, for two major reasons. When you have sleep apnea, it drives up your blood pressure, number one. So treating sleep apnea reduces blood pressure. But number two, when you have sleep apnea, it's like someone's got their hands around your throat. So you're basically being choked of oxygen. And when you choke the brain cells of oxygen, that may just tip the plaques over and induce a stroke. Oh, absolutely. Sleep apnea is a, a horrible condition in terms of its relationship, especially to stroke and high blood pressure. I feel like there are so many things in our life that impact our heart. Like, you know, sleep apnea might not impact, I don't know, like your kidney, but it will impact your heart. Same with 
all the things that we do is like every little thing impacts our heart. So you really are in the most important profession, Ross. Kiss me in a job, that wonderful pulsating thing in the thorax. <laughs> I love it. What do you think of bionic hearts? Do you think that'll come in one day? Where we'll have no, like sorry, no, they're metal already hearts. In. Really? No, they're already no, they're already in. The bio, bionic hearts have already been developed and they're being used as a a bridge to transplantation and even possibly as as for people who can't have a transplant, just to at least give them a relatively normal life. But at the moment, they, 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 they have been developed, they are being used, but it's certainly the the end stage therapy. Does that mean we could TikTok forever? Uh, there are the other other issues. We'll we'll have an anti aging wow. podcast. We'll talk if about. If I all could that. give my my dog a bionic heart and make her live forever. I'd be so happy. Yeah, but there are other parts of the body that have to to hold up with that as well. It's not just it's not just the heart. It's the whole body, the brain, everything else has to be working well. Yeah, that's true. Okay, it's a good point. Okay. <laughs> now, I know we've got a member question of the week. Rosa, do you want to read this one out? Okay, we've got this question from Fran. What is the difference between the mind and the brain? Now, you're an expert in this area, Gina. Please tell us. Well, our mind and our brain, they're not the same thing, although they both do have tremendous power over our body and our actions. Our brain is a physical organ. It's part of a visible, tangible world of our body. It's composed of, you know, we've got neurons and cells and it uses electrical and chemical signals to communicate with itself and with the rest of the body. Our brain is a physical structure that enables our mind to exist and to function. Our mind is a more abstract concept and it refers to sort of the subjective experiences and I guess mental processes that emerge from the activity of the brain. So our mind is part of an invisible, transcendent world of thoughts, feelings, attitudes, beliefs, emotions, perceptions, memory and imagination. Our mind is shaped by like a lot of things, like our genetics, our environment, our experiences, uh, at, like day after day, it's actually building and it's reprogramming our brain. I like to say that the mind and the brain are a unified system because as the brain changes, the mind changes. And as the mind changes, the brain changes. So although they are separate things, they definitely are unified. Ross, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this question. What is the difference between the mind and the brain? Okay. Well, well, I have my own thoughts, but let me say there is a, a, a very strong and prominent group of people who work in the field of consciousness who firmly believe at a reductionist level that everything can be explained by the chemicals going on in the brain tissue itself. Now, that may be the case, but they have been striving for years to find the center of self in the brain. And so we all look at something that's red, but we have different perceptions of what that red is. So what is red to you and red to me is probably similar, but what it evokes inside of us, that can never be, well, to this point, and science is only as good as its testing equipment, but they've never been able to say, what is, what is the source of self-perception? What is the, the, the source of self-consciousness? So I, I look at life pretty straight. And this this is, I have absolutely no science to back up what I'm about to say, but I'm just giving you my own perception on this. There are two, two potential uh, explanations of life. One is you're born, good luck, bad luck, you die, and then you rot in the ground. That may be the case. I'm not arrogant enough to say that I know either side which is right. That's one explanation for life. 
So, but it makes life pretty purposeless in my view. Two, there is some background higher purpose to life that might be through religion or through what some people call God, many spiritual people call it a universal consciousness, where there's something well beyond the tangible physical world. And to me, that gives a much better explanation of the mind because, uh, again, I make the analogy of a computer screen or a TV where you see a, a television show. Now, the, the people who are in that show aren't in the television. They're being transmitted into the television. So if you believe in universal consciousness, that what is going on in your brain is, is a really a compilation, as you so beautifully put it, of, of all the different experiences you've had in your life, the genetic aspects of going on, uh, that are going on, and, and different people have different levels of self-awareness and self-consciousness at different parts of evolution. See, I, I think life's about one thing. I think it's about spiritual evolution. Now, I'm not talking about religion. I'm just talking about becoming better at everything you do, every moment of the day, every day of your life. And I think that's what it's about. And I think there's a purpose to it. At the moment of your death, you may rot in the ground. I don't know. Or at the moment of your death, what some people call the spirit may go somewhere else. And I don't know where that is. But I, all I'm saying is that that's the way I live my life, that there is a purpose. And and I think I think all of us need to have a purpose. That purpose might be a very a physical, material purpose, such as just your family could be your purpose. I, I don't care what it is, but I, I put the play out there to everyone, whether there there is a mind, whether there is a brain, whether there's two separate entities, but the plea I put out there to everyone is have a purpose in life and live to that purpose. Yeah, I've read a lot of research in the longevity space that shows that people that do believe in high power tend to live longer, they're more satisfied, uh, they're happier, and they do have a greater sense of purpose in their life. Yeah. yeah. Or people who just have a sense of purpose and that, as I said, the purpose might be volunteering. It might might be their, their community. It, it certainly may just be their family. It could be their religion. It could be their work. I don't care, but we've got to have a purpose. We've got to have something that gets us out of bed in the morning, something that drives us, something that makes us passionate. Yeah, love it. Thanks, Ross. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode on mm. Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. <laughs> Whatever platform you're listening to, please hit subscribe. And that's all from us. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week for more conversations with me, Dr. Gina Cleo, and my co-host, Dr. Ross Walker. Bye. Bye.